Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. There's an interesting documentary on Netflix. Well, there's a number, but the one I'm thinking about, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster. And it talks about blockbuster video and the very last one, which is in a small town in Oregon. It plays, it's interesting that it's on Netflix because Netflix maybe was part of killing blockbuster. When I was a kid, you spent your Friday night or your Saturday night when I was a young adult going to the video store and standing in front of a wall and selecting a video and you hope they had it in and all that kind of stuff and you had late fees and everything else. And now there are no more blockbusters. Uh, The Bible never said that the gates of hell would not prevail against blockbuster, but apparently the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times it can seem like we're waiting for the last uh, blockbuster to close. The church in many people's minds is in decline. You may have participated in church Um, quite exhaustively in your past, and now maybe don't go to church at all. What is the church? Who is the church? Does the church have any role in society right now? Uh, What do pastors think about that? What do others think about that? Here at Rector's Cupboard, we were really pleased to be invited to enter into conversation with a friend of ours, David Goa, who is an author and museum curator, um, writer on all kinds of different topics of faith and culture, uh, he's the founder of the Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life, and uh, he's a bit of an Orthodox theologian as well. And so he said, why don't we talk about the church, who the church is, what the church is, and what people have to say. So this series is what has so far come out as a result of that uh, invitation. We speak with a number of people who care about the church and are willing to ask some of those honest questions about where the church is at and what the future looks like for the church in the days ahead. We've got uh, six episodes, I think, seven episodes, and, uh, and we'll be releasing those uh, every couple of days. And so if this is the first time you're listening, if you're listening as they're released, that will be the cadence. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The Church in Between Times, Episode 6. We speak with Ken Bell, who is currently chaplain at Broadway Lodge and was formerly minister at St. Timothy's Anglican Church. Ken shares a thoughtful and hopeful reflection on his own story in becoming a minister. How does the church inspire people to meaningful vocation? My sense is that ideology is always um, a temptation for those that seek to be faithful for those that perhaps even love the theological world. It strikes me that ideology is to theology what the art of surgery is to health. It it is necessary to highlight disease. If the disease is of such that that one can actually remove it, which is rather simple, 
often. Um, ideology has perhaps played a role. But when, when the church and people in the church, whether it's on the right or the left, whether it's conservatives or progressives, when they begin to think that ideology is theology, when ideology colonizes the revelation, colonizes the spiritual disciplines, colonizes their view of the world, colonizes who's in and who's out. My sense is that one has stepped into an odd place from the perspective of ecclesia, from the perspective of that gathering which seeks to make all things new. Our own time, at least my life, certainly, I have seen the presence so often of ideologies on the left, ideologies on the right, dwelling at the center. So that is why I want in part to have these conversations, to think again about who is she? Who is the bride of Christ, the ecclesia? What do we make of her? Does she remake us? So I'm grateful to Todd and Allison for inviting the opportunity, opening the opportunity to have these conversations here in Vancouver. So thank you so much. And thank you, David. And and, uh, we're pleased to be joined for this conversation by, uh, well, friend, co-worker for many years, um, for myself, Ken Bell, um, the Reverend Ken Bell. That's correct. Is that still? Yeah, officially, yes. I never go by that, but yes. Ken was an ordained Anglican minister. Still uh, am, technically still still ordained, but not practicing as a minister. minister. Um, For 15 years or so. Yep. And in... uh, through the schism in, in uh, the Anglican Church in Canada and various places, uh, kind of, uh, is it fair to say, a, a breakaway of, of the diocese here? Yeah, I was part of the group that broke away from the diocese over that yeah. issue. And, yes. then, and then was a minister in a church for some time, and then a, two and a half years ago? Uh, yeah, about two and a half years ago. Left that position, and you're now um, working in chaplaincy? Yeah. In... Uh, care home and in multiple sites and uh, so Ken thanks for being here it's great to uh, to have you as part of this conversation and with David's introduction I know that there's probably a lot that you could uh, (laughs) talk about so I had to David to uh, ask away yeah thank you it's good to be here great to see you in your early formation and your early intellectual formation as well what did you come to understand the church to be? I think my my early introduction to the church, I, I was thinking about this today on the way over. Um, for me, it was really a sense of family. Like that was my understanding. It was a part of an extended family. So I didn't really grow up 
very early going to church. We started going when I was about 12. And my introduction to it was that this was sort of an extended family. We started spending time with the people there. Um, we'd have meals together. We went on vacations together with some of the folks. Um, and if there was something that happened to someone else in the community, uh, a job loss or uh, someone passed away or someone got sick, uh, we would rally around that person. Uh, we would learn together. We'd worship together. We'd uh, help each other. And so it was really a sense of an extended family. And I think that was that, that helped form your understanding of who, who Jesus was and who we were in Christ, uh, both individually and corporately. So that was, I think, my early concept of what the church was. And then when you studied, when you began to study theology and um, dipped into the thinking of the tradition about the revelation and particularly about ecclesia, was there anything that surfaced in that? Yeah, I began to understand that there, I mean, obviously there's a lot more history to it. The concept of, you know, the, the church being the called out ones or the sent out ones to go out into the world to do something. Um, as the church I was a part of, uh, the Anglican Church in Canada began to be a bit more influenced by some uh, the more evangelical traditions. We shifted, there was a shift sort of in focus towards you've got to learn some facts about God, about Christ that you could package into a nice little, uh, I'm going to say this overly negatively, but sales pitch so that we could uh, either convert or save people. So that was part of the job of the church was to save and convert people. As opposed to my early experience was we wanted to invite people to join us in the, in the beautiful thing that we had, but it wasn't for the purpose of either saving them from the, from the pits of hell or converting them or telling them that they were horrible people. And I think part of that, part of the angle that came in at that time too, was an understanding of the church seeing itself as the vanguard of morality Uh for culture. So those were all influences that came in uh, as I began to, Uh, spend time in different parts of the Anglican world and evangelical world, these other images of, yeah, vanguard. The church had a job to do to save the world, to work on behalf of God to save the world. What were those facts? What were those facts about God, about Jesus Christ, that, that were the impetus behind this? Well, a lot of it was the basic, the basic premises of what some would call the four spiritual laws. You know, God created the world beautifully and perfectly, then we screwed it up and everyone's going, uh, you know, everyone is divided from God and God sends Jesus to bridge the gap because uh, we can't reach Jesus and God can't reach us. So there's this bridge that we walk across. The whole four spiritual laws, it was the, and then you expanded beyond that, but that was everything sort of rooted back to that, real simplicity of uh, almost a f- uh, God wants to help us 
but is somewhat impeded and so has to come up with a solution to the problem, and that is Jesus. And that was the basic teaching. And then we have to respond to that because Jesus isn't quite enough. Uh, we actually have to end up doing the saving really of ourselves so, by by doing something with that information. So you picked this up, not in your studies from what I'm gleaning, but no, in your life in a particular in this case, Anglican church. Yeah. So this church has a perspective and a way of seeing faith and a way of seeing what it means to be church. And then you pick up what you're saying from that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What years was that? When did the four spiritual laws invade this Anglican church? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I I mean, I probably first started experiencing it uh, probably around the age of about, well, my first introduction to it would have been uh, the Billy Graham crusade in what was that, 1983 in BC, 83 or 84? Todd, you were one of his counselors. I I brought people from the high school to (laughs) convert them and I was a counselor. So I think that's where I got a first introduction to that concept that God didn't just uh, love us and, 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 and God himself didn't save us, that we had to do something in the saving uh, in order to make it effectual uh, was then. And then it, it, it increased over the years as the Anglican church began to have these, you sort of had this um, evangelical wing of the Anglican church in Canada you had sort of a, a charismatic wing of the Anglican Church in Canada, and you had sort of the traditional. You guys were kind of a mix wing. of that. You were kind the, of charismatic evangelical. A little yeah, bit. the church I was a part of at the time, being a youth pastor, was um, sort of was quite uh, charismatic, quite into the uh, spiritual renewal movement within the Anglican Church, starting out of. Um, really heavily influenced uh, out of the movement in Seattle. Uh, Dennis Bennett, right? Nine o'clock in the morning, that book. Um, but also the evangelical, they were called the Barnabas Group, I think is what they were called in, in uh, Canada in the Anglican Church. Uh, those two sort of forces came together and, and galvanize, began to galvanize around the issue of same-sex marriage and all that that came up in the late 90s and early 2000s in the Anglican Church. So spiritual renewal. Mm-hmm. What did that mean? Did it mean some kind of moral rearmament? No, in those in those days, it was really an awareness of the activity of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Anglican Church uh, had a long tradition, in many ways, of being fairly traditionalist uh, and and traditional, and, and you had the prayer book and you had set prayers and all that the the whole liturgy thing. And then the late 60s, the experience from uh, Dennis Bennett out of Seattle um, began this understanding of a, a sort of a charismatic renewal that the Holy Spirit was actually a part of God that was present and could be active in your life. And people were experiencing everything from, uh, I mean, you could you could sing praise music. You didn't just have to sing the hymns from 300 years mm-hmm. ago to uh, praying in tongues, to healings, to uh, all those sort of manifestations of the Spirit, people having uh, words of knowledge and words of wisdom. Uh, and so that was more the charismatic renewal. It was this understanding that in its beauty, it was an understanding that faith was meant to be alive in you. 
and that that liveliness, that engagement mm-hmm. of ignition was the the flames of the Holy Spirit. And that was something that you know many Christians, including those in the Anglican Church, maybe were unaware of or sort of pushed down. So it wasn't that different from what happened even starting at the Azusa Street Mission in the early 1900s. It was it was an eventual offshoot of, of that, of this awareness of the activity of the Holy Spirit. The faith wasn't just this intellectual thing that you affirmed it was actually something that could be alive in you so there was a lot of beauty in that there's a long tradition of that isn't there in the church mm-hmm. um, we see it in the apostles we see it um, you know we have a, a grand example of it in the eastern christian church uh, back in the in the 13th century and then we have somebody like like um, gregory the new theologian who was a kind of charismatic uh, character and where the Holy Spirit uh, flamed within within some communities, and there's always pushback and tension around it. And my own my own spiritual patrimony, you know, the Lutheran Church in Scandinavia and in Germany, and the rise a hundred years after Luther's death, the rise of Johann Arndt and Pietism, which pushes back against a couple of things. One is it pushes back against clericalism mm-hmm. and the notion that that the church is um, the sheep and the shepherd is doing all the work. Mm-hmm. It pushes back against a kind of neo-scholasticism, a notion that belief is the only thing that counts. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there is this, uh, well, to use... Wesley's lovely little phrase, this heart strangely warmed, mm-hmm. yeah. which uh, has impact. In the overall considerations of the church, there is a kind of warning in, in, um, that we see in the thinking about the nature of the church which on the one hand affirms this liveliness Mm -hmm. and on the other hand points to its danger Mm -hmm. of uh, all the persons of the Trinity, the one that can most uh, vividly be mimicked by Mm. the devil is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That dynamic... Uh, presence and of course the act of discernment then becomes so significant yeah and also it seems to me the the challenge of uh, discerning well and of that flame being the flame of actual faith. Yeah. And so often with these movements, so often with these movements, they rather quickly become colonized. Yeah. And um, so I'm wondering in your, in your life as, a, as a, an Anglican clergyman, 
and the community that uh, that you were part of, the church you were part of? First of all, they see that the movement within the culture and the society that there's some some concerns that arise here. Mm-hmm. And so they respond to those concerns. Can you say a little bit about how those concerns were seen and then and what is what is significant and good in that? And then what happens as it as it begins to unfold and take root? And then what happens w- within the church itself around it? Yeah, I mean I think the the church in its in its in its goodness wants to see goodness and justice for people, uh, and so when they see a concern arise, and that's where we get, um, you know, the rise of Sunday schools. We want to educate people. The rise of hospitals. The rise of uh, whether it's food kitchens or uh, all these different things to care for people who are hurting. And I think an offshoot of that can be then people begin to observe, well, where is some of this hurting coming from? And some of that hurt comes from uh, political attitudes. So it could be uh, the political attitude of sort of the more uh, conservative, everyone's got to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps sort of thing. And that leaves a lot of people behind who can't do that. And so the church responds. They don't have have boots. They don't have boots. (laughs) Uh, And so the church responds. And the church responds to horrible conditions in mines Mm -hmm, and child mm -hmm. labor and all that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the church then also... When, when you see the, the threat come from the other side, so the church, so the culture begins to embrace uh, sex outside of marriage or divorce or any of these other issues. And, and those things can lead to hurt as well in people's lives. And so the church wants to respond mm-hmm. to that. So I think there's a place where it can come out of a genuine desire to care for those who are hurting. But then it can very easily, as you say, become sort of hijacked or colonized for a bigger political or moral purpose. And the church then all of a sudden sees its job as being the protector of morality rather than the carer of those who are hurting. And the church becomes the ones who get to judge what is right, what is wrong, what is holy, and what is unholy. And I think that's a job best left for Father, Son, and Spirit rather than uh, rather than the church. But I think it's it becomes part of what the church does, and so it can lead to it eventually in the Anglican Church. I mean, we we there was. Always issues. I remember growing up. Part of one of the discussions was whether or not Dungeons and Dragons was a good and holy thing, or, or not or a holy acceptable. thing. <laughs> yeah. But whether or not, as a child, I should be allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which is no different than should the church be allowed to hold dances. Now, in the Anglican Church, that actually wasn't an issue. I actually, these guys are going to laugh. I used to be a DJ. Um, <laughs> Everything about that is 
Just kind <laughs> of amazing to me. <laughs> Thank you very much. At church events? <laughs> At church events. Oh, okay. my we, would hold, we would have church dances. And we are marching in. Oh no, 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 no. no. Ah. Actual, okay. the, no this was actual, okay. actual secular music and dances and stuff. So the dancing thing wasn't an issue in Anglicanism, but of course other Other traditions issues, picked that up. Yeah, other traditions <laughs> picked that up and fought against it. So we all have these things that we fear if we go down that road, it's going to cause... Moral failure, moral failure leads to pain and hurt. Well, like and decay of the church, and decay, and decay of, the of, church. of commitment, and you let go well, of these standards. Decay of culture. And, yeah. yeah, but and, and I want to be optimistic and or towards that and say somewhere underneath all that, there was uh, that this can lead to the hurt of other people. So people's hearts can be harmed by um, doing whatever, too many drugs or having sex with 50 different partners or whatever, uh, and never feeling a love attachment, but see yourself as something that is just to be passed around and you don't end up having any value in yourself. So I, I think there was a degree to which there was, I, I, I like to think that there was at least some positive motivation, some positive motivation, but it gets hijacked. And, and as you, you're the word you use is colonized out of that. I was struck, you know, under Paul Martin. I mean, that discussion about changing the marriage law mm-hmm. um, began, of course, long before Paul Martin. But Paul Martin was a Catholic, and mm-hmm. um, he was not unthoughtful. I know his EA, who actually comes from Edmonton, and she was a devout Catholic, and she spent lots of time talking with him about this. And so what was very striking in Alberta during that period was uh, Bishop Henry, lace Irish bishop, with no unexpressed words uh, <laughs> from Calgary, a charming man in many ways. And the Alliance Church clergyman in Sherwood Park, large suburb of Edmonton, these became the two people that journalists went to around this issue. And then, of course, they went to several of the spokespersons for uh, gay and lesbian lobby groups. Mm-hmm. And what you ended up was these two sides completely having, having all the oxygen in the, in the public sphere. Yeah. This is very striking to me at the time. So this, to my mind, is a profound failure, I would say first and foremost, of journalism, mm-hmm. uh, but also, it was very telling to listen to how they articulated the issue. And what struck me is that both uh, Bishop Henry and the Alliance Church clergyman, they, they reacted to how the position was shaped. Mm. So it was purely reactive. Mm. They never used this moment to speak any word about the significance of marriage. Right. That was the other thing that was so striking about it. This, this wasn't about marriage. It was about same-sex relations. It was about Leviticus 20. Yeah. And... Um, so my sense is that there was a, 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 a wonderful pedagogical moment here, which was completely squandered. 
there was no real discussion about what spousal relationships can look like mm-hmm. wherever they may be because all of us participate in a variety of spousal relationships. You know, if you think of marriage, if you think of God's relationship to creation as the relationship of uh, a juridical relationship as opposed to a spousal relationship, if you forget about the book of Hosea, you know, if you, if you no longer see the Holy One, blessed be he, as wooing us, mm-hmm. but rather as judge, yeah. jury, and executioner, mm-hmm. that really reshapes your relationship to society yeah. and to creation itself. So I wondered at the time, what's really the backdrop here? What's, what's happening? Why, why don't they use this opportunity not to fight with, hmm. with people that want the, the marriage law to change only to the extent that it no longer says male, female? And the amazing confusions. I mean, state marriage hmm. has nothing to do with religious marriages, even religious marriages in the in the Alliance Church, mm-hmm. which are of the lowest liturgical yeah. <laughs> register that is imaginable by either God or Satan. <laughs> so, but it still is understood to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. So marriage within religious, within the Christian traditions, all of them, is some form of blessing. Something new is coming about. State marriage is about death. Yeah. Because the state has a vested interest in the proper transfer of property. That's right. It's about death. So the state marriage license is a death license. And the marriage license, well, my own view, is that the last thing the evangelicals were doing on behalf of the state, because the evangelical tradition, a great tradition in my view with great mm-hmm. gifts, really helped establish the secular, the secular society. Right. Mm-hmm. which frees the church. Yeah. Tremendous contributions to this. But the last thing they wanted to do on behalf of Caesar was to sign Caesar's document. Yeah. And this was bizarre to me. So it seemed to me to have a terrible confusion, but I'm sorry. I don't I don't mean to yeah. get, get ahead of this, but but in your experience this then falls into the center of the community that you're uh, serving. Yeah. And what what then unfolds and what happens? And how, how, do you, how do you navigate this? I mean, what ends up happening is a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Um, you know, the church ends up, the Anglican church ends up dividing over this. And not just in Canada, but in the States and in England and uh, really around the world. There's a, there's a global shakeup in Anglicanism, which for about 89 to 93% of the world, they don't notice it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for those involved in Anglicanism, they do. And it ends up, I mean, the Anglican Church had had this amazing ability to hold together, even if they disagreed about what was going on. So even at the communion table, you had some within the Anglican Church who danced on the edge and even crossed, a, you know, stepped across that line into it was transubstantiation. Officially on their exam requirements, the priests would say it wasn't, but their practice was it was. 
And you had the other extreme of the more evangelical types who said, really, this is just memorial, nothing here to see. It is purely symbol, uh, but we'll agree that it's in some way a sacrament of there's, there's something perhaps mysterious going on here. And they were able to live with that. You could, you had a church where, uh, they, some agreed to, uh, women's ordination and some didn't some who actually believed more in adult baptism, uh, than in infant baptism, but they still allowed it to go on. For some reason, this particular issue was the line in the sand and that, drove the wedge finally between. Why? Do you know why? I was going to ask. Why is it the line in the sand, this issue? Do you have any sense of that? I think there had been a growing sense mm-hmm. of um, divide in the church before over over more issues of... Uh, you, you had bishops and leaders, people like... Um, uh, the Bishop of New Jersey, his name is escaping me right Spong. now, Spong, who is beginning to introduce concepts that, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't fully God and fully human, didn't necessarily believe in the Trinity. You could sort of believe in anything. And, and Yaroslav Pelikan, you know, the great, mm-hmm. the greatest historian of Christian ideas that yeah. I think has ever existed. Yaroslav Pelikan said to me with some amusement, at the Yale Club on one occasion. The Bishop Spong is the only person in the history of the church who's been able to hold together two competing heresies at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty brilliant. That's quite a feat. <laughs> and, and you had, you had people, there was something back in the late 90s, early 2000s called the United Religions Initiative, which was basically declaring that any form of sharing your faith or evangelism was dangerous and you shouldn't do it and all religions are the same and, and that. Uh, and the bishop uh, at the time in New Westminster was one of the signatories uh, or participants anyways in this dialogue. And I think... There was this thing that they wanted to go after, but nothing tangible had been done. Things had been said. Uh, theologies had been articulated. With so there was this fear. With ordination of uh, people who are gay or same-sex marriage, now an action was actually being done. And so now you could actually go after the action rather than a thought. And so I think that's one of the reasons why this particular issue was the thing that finally they said finally we have our avenue because an action it's you you can't just go after a bishop spong because he thinks something but you can go after people who commit an action that we think is against uh the uh the theology of but then it literally became then added to that was you know because it was it was the diocese that that began being open to blessing same-sex yeah. marriage and or unions and and then the rhetoric I heard was, well, those aren't the real Anglicans, right? We are the real We're, Anglicans. Yeah. They're the ones who have strayed, and yeah. we are the real Anglicans. So now they strayed you're, from Orthodoxy. You're moving yeah. right into into I- ideology and into well, and and I wonder what sort of effect did this have on on how, I would suppose, in, in this context, the Anglican Church 
still as one kind of whole at this point, how it actually views its its function and views its purpose with with this civil war that's occurring. Yeah, and 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 that's and that was part of the argument too is that if we have structures in place uh, where if we want to change, for example, the ordination of women was another one that eventually is supposed to make its way through the proper channels and authority and ultimately end up at uh, Lambeth and at the feet of the Archbishop of Canterbury. You can't just have one rogue bishop go off and make a decision that mm-hmm. changes the theology of the church. So that was that was part of the uh, argument before it. I think it's a bit of a weak well, argument, but it was... people who wind up breaking away. Exactly. Like you and need so to recognize the authority, but now... But now we're not, not going to recognize the authority. And, and what you end up having is you have people have these, well, if that person shows up at the meeting, I'm not going to show up at the meeting. And, you know, I don't want to share my toys in the sandbox with them. And it becomes, it ends up becoming very childish. And I can only... I mean, my, my, my heart aches for the amount of hurt that was mm-hmm. done throughout all that friendships families old relationships because now there was a litmus test it wasn't just are you on this side or that side it was actually a litmus test are you a christian or not and that the amount of hurt and damage and and just the reputation of the church then in culture that it takes the church again looks hateful they're against stuff rather than being for stuff. But you ran with this. I did. Uh, Or or you continued to serve in that context. How did did that unfold for you? And what were your, what was the challenge of that? I mean, you've expressed the hurt, your sense of the hurt, and I really appreciate the way you speak about that. For me, uh, as as I've done some thinking back on it uh, over the years, uh, especially over the last couple of years, I I was weak and afraid. Um, I didn't necessarily agree with the decisions being made, but I was I was afraid of losing my job. I was afraid of because you were in a church that was moving away from they were going to be from the diocese. Yeah, and if I and, it, and this decision and this decision and if I. I tried to rationalize my own argument to go along with them under the idea that, yeah, you know, the bishop is just doing things improperly. It's it's really a a, a uh, you know when you're in a business meeting. Oh, you like have a hierarchical. The, yeah. I remember you saying to me at the time. I remember you saying, "Well, this isn't the real issue. The real issue is, you know, he's not interested in Christian faith really, or in like it's going to go this way. We're not." It's not going to be about the Bible. It's not. So yeah. I could see that even initially. I, I, I was trying like, to rationalize this it. This is wordly it, where it's going. It's not about this. It's not it's about, about this. what comes next. Yeah. But what it came down for, for me personally, was I was a coward. I did not have the the faith in myself or the faith in God to actually just sort of say, no, I'm going to walk away from this. Um, and then over the years, when I finally got ordained in the church, this for the 15 years I served in the church that I did, this issue never came up. We never talked about it. It was never mm-hmm. a talk. Yes, I never preached about it. Uh, so after I, the separation, the issue was no longer in the center mm-hmm. of the people that chose to separate. 
Yeah. On that issue. At least in, in my, in my group. I mean, there were some who still were, were, were fighting that battle everywhere. Uh, the part of the church that we sort of landed with was genuinely saying, look, you know, the Anglican church hasn't planted churches in decades. And we went from having about 20 churches to 800 churches, most of whom were new plants. Some were transplants, a church that existed and simply moved over. But about 80, 60, 70% were brand new churches. There was, there was mission work going on. They were trying to open up in coffee shops and, and pubs and doing just different things to try to engage people who were uh, who hadn't gone to church maybe ever had left the church and so there was there was some good stuff and again I tried to uh, justify my myself around there's a lot of good going on here but eventually I, I came to the point that I I caught up with my own internal BS and said I can't I can't do this anymore and I finally found the courage to uh, step away but it took me 15 years to find, uh, to actually find my courage because I was afraid of, I was married, had kids. Um, I was afraid of losing all that. And I didn't think I'd, I had, I was a, I was a youth pastor and then a priest. I had no skills. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing I could do. Like I would, other than that, Outside I, was, of church work. <laughs> I was dangerous with a hammer. And some of your people didn't even think that you turned, uh, bread into flesh and, Wine yeah. and right. blood. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty substantial skill from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, Ken, at the time, and then particularly toward the end before you resigned. Yeah. Um, I- in working in this church and ministering as priest and leader, uh, you were able to connect with some of those, you know, new initiatives. And it was a, it was a community that had a vitality to it and mm-hmm. had... Um, but they also were a community in my, cause I knew them well, obviously you, yeah. we shared a building. Um, they seem to want many of the trappings of Anglicanism without the authority. So then you're priest in this place, but you know, it's, but where I saw the, I think you may be in my, at least telling overplay the, the cowardliness or the lack of courage that where I saw the disconnect for you as often you would come back from a conference or from a, so you with your church, this wasn't something that was present. You weren't like preaching against, you know, the, the terrible nature of these other views or whatever, but you would come back from a gathering of, of other ministers and you'd say like, uh, I just don't know if I can keep doing this Yeah, because you, the realization that that was going on in other places. And all they kept talking about was how horrible the, I remember sitting in, in, in conferences and, and national meetings where all they talked about was how horrible the other people were. Uh, we don't think there's a Christian left in the Anglican Church of Canada. The last Christian clergy finally left the Anglican Church of Canada. So then like, it becomes like what they're standing against as opposed to like what they're actually doing. And it also becomes that they have then put themselves in the place of judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah. They know who they're they know who they're against and who they're not. They had no concept of who they are, or what they're for. I saw and that I as a terrible burden for you that you couldn't do that I saw anymore. That, exist- that kind of like uh, the pain of that for you. That, that like I, kind of assault I upon, get it. upon I, faith. Yeah, <laughs> and I get it. A year or two after the hurt, whether whether there was 
you know, you caused your own hurt or not. The, the sorrow and grief for the first two years, sure, you can still be licking your wounds and talking about that. But seriously, 15 years later, this is what you're still talking about? Your identity's been rerouted. It's yeah. become a negative identity. Yeah. Well, and, and you go when, when I would imagine when, when that's kind of the, the beginnings of, of this, that that can end up kind of invading and encircling some of the stuff is you still define yourself as we are here in this position because we had to stand against yeah, and we had to break off. It's very odd, isn't it, that people who one would assume have grown up with the scripture and certainly with the gospel, that some of those texts wouldn't illuminate this passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it strikes me, for example, when we look at the disciple Judas. Judas, Judas was the Puritan, the liberal Puritan mm-hmm. among the disciples. He was the one that cared most deeply for the formal appearance of social justice. Mm-hmm. That's why he pushed back against the woman with the alabaster jar. Yeah. That's why he, he said, uh, you know, that money could have been used better. So it's amazing to me any time we get on our moral high horse how utterly dangerous that is. Mm. Because in the moment we do that, and I, God knows I've done it plenty, um, we step out of presence. We divide the world. Yeah. And we no longer are seeking to be addressed by the presence of the Holy One in the world. Well, so we've created a new idol, me. We've created a new idol, me. It's the prism through which I see things. And the tragedy of that, the tragedy of sin, missing the mark, is that you recreate the world in your own image. Mm -hmm. Instead of realize that you are created in the image of God and the world is a wonder. Yeah. So how, what happened then for you as you began to, in the, the deeper struggle of this, when you find when you came to the place of saying, "I can't do this anymore," mm-hmm. did that? I guess what I'm wondering about is, that's it. It seems to me, if I hear you, that's not an ideological shift for you, mm-hmm. or is it? Or is it simply uh, stepping away from seeing? issues through that prism into another. I mean, I began by talking about my sense, rightly or wrongly, that all ideology is, uh, or that the antidote to all ideology is theology, is Mm. a deep theological understanding, whether it's on the right or the left. Yeah. That all ideology is, uh, is a reaction to something which may be significant. I'm not saying it shouldn't be thought about. Of course it should be. Yeah. But the ideological prism is not the prism of faith. 
it's the prism of a particular kind of analysis. It's, as I said, it's the equivalent in the world of ideas to surgery in mm -hmm. the life of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I just, it, it was a, it was a gradual awakening in some ways of what was already within me. I mean, the, the, the church I grew up in, when, when the, the first time I went to church, I, I would say my conversion moment, I've shared this before, was when I walked into the building of the church. I hadn't heard a word about Jesus, hadn't heard a word about uh, faith or scripture, anything. I walked into a church. Uh, the subtle Anglican church in Tawasson, and I was converted because it was the first time in my life I ever felt accepted and welcomed. It was the first time I ever, in today's language, felt seen. And that was it for me. I was sold from that point on because it also allowed me to, to believe that God sees me. Uh, and... What I was able to do as I moved along in my faith and, and, and in my role in the church was to be exposed to different understandings and readings of, of Scripture, which helped me to understand a broader sense of who God is. And one example of that is just the, for me, it was a, a re-understanding of, of the, the um, creation narrative to see that it's actually about initial uh, blessing mm -hmm. and that the end of that story should be and God went with us mm -hmm. right that's where the that's where that story of the fall mm -hmm. ended is mm -hmm. and God went God mm -hmm. went with them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Emmanuel was there immediately mm -hmm. uh, and that really helped give me some groundwork um, there was a couple of different books that Todd and I read over the years that that helped give some theological heft to things I had already been thinking because I'm not, I'm not a I'm not a particularly bright individual and so I need help to uh, build that stuff up. Um, <laughs> and so there's stuff I was thinking, but it gave me some theological heft. And writers like Brendan Manning were, was was certainly one of them, uh, and so. That's what allowed me to to sort of say I I can rely and 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 believe in I can I can rely in my faith in God and and I don't need the trappings of these other things right now. And now you work in primarily and, in care, yeah, long term care, long term care with people where the need is so palpable, yeah, and where you can do very little. Well, yesterday, um, so I was I was at uh, we have a residence for independent living, which is uh, for adults with disabilities, and I was doing a church service there. I do it about once a month there, or twice a month. The topic was going to be uh, grief and sorrow, and I'd already planned that. And uh, when I arrived there that yesterday. Uh, a young man who's one of the residents there, he'd only, he's the newest resident, only been there since March, said to me, Ken, our prayers last week didn't work. I said, what do you mean? My mom died yesterday. He had lost his dad earlier this year, uh, the day before he moved in. 
to our, our place. His dad died and now his mom is gone. And I went to him afterwards and said, hey, he always comes to our services. And I said to him, hey, look, this is going to be the topic, sorrow and grief. I wanted to give you a heads up because I don't know if you want to enter into that conversation right now. But he came and the, the, the end of the story is basically he came and we talked about grief. We talked about sorrow. We talked about the pain of it. And what happened is the other eight or nine residents who were there rallied around him and said, you're not alone. Because that's how he, he was angry at God and he was feeling all alone now because he's an orphan. And they said to him, you're not alone. And that is that extended family of the church that I first met and fell in love with and allowed me to fall in love with Jesus. So beautiful, Ken. Well, I, you know, as I say, we've been friends for many years and worked together for many years. And uh, I can vouch that that uh, I've seen this existence of the church in, in your current work and the freedom. Um that you have found uh, and and that all those other things in, in what's brought you to this point we're grateful for but it's there's a there's an integration now mm-hmm. <laughs> that is greater than than has been in a number of years and uh, so um, we're grateful for that and grateful for you mm-hmm. coming and speaking well, with you. us and thank about this important me. topic too of schism and disagreement in the church and what happens through some of these things and what what uh, our particular moment in history um, implications for moving forward as a church. So thanks so much, Ken. Thank, Thank you, you, David. Thank you, David. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Miner. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.